I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening to Port City Politics. Just a quick note, today's show was recorded with reporter Michael Pratt while he was on the road in Charlotte, and so the sound quality is not ideal. We're still working on getting our footing here on this new arrangement across the state, but we promise we will get there, so just bear with us for today's episode. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. And I'm Michael Pratt. And this week we're going to talk about the uh, city's attempt to purchase the Thermo Fisher campus. We're going to talk about a big human trafficking case, talk a little bit about uh, what's going out on uh, out there in uh, Charlotte, too. So uh, let's get started. Let's talk about Thermo Fisher. All right. So this is one that we have followed for uh, a a little bit now, maybe around six months or so, I'd say, since this idea first really made it to the to the headlines, right? And this is that uh, Thermo Fisher, for those who don't know, is the building formerly known as PPD. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's massive. If you're downtown and you look around and you see the tallest thing, that's the former PPD building. Yeah, that's right there by the uh, by the, where the Gateway Project is supposed to one day eventually go. Yes. Um, so, yes. that what happened then with that with that building it was thermo fisher came in and bought ppd and then what yeah so thermo fisher came in and bought ppd and the pandemic was happening and almost everyone Ah. was working from home it's depending on who you ask we're either still in the worst part of the pandemic or we're totally free and clear i don't think there's consensus on that but the workplace has kind of come to a consensus that in general, we've settled back into the new mode of working. So people who were working remotely during, you know, the first couple of years of the pandemic, um, a lot of them have stayed working remotely or some of them have shifted into hybrid working patterns. And so the demand for corporate real estate, uh, office workspace, has not experienced quite the same boom that the uh, residential uh, real estate market has experienced. And so Thermo was Thermo Fisher said, hey, as a company, we're doing fine. They wanted to be very clear about that, that this was not a sign of, of financial distress. But we don't need this huge 12-story building with, I think it's 300,000 square feet of office space. We just don't need it. Um, and because the, the commercial market seems to be less hot than the residential market, it seemed like they had trouble selling it. it it's been on the market for a while. And so... Eventually, I guess someone brought this is something we still want to figure out who exactly did this, but someone brought this idea to the city to to purchase it. And it's a it's a big lift. It's just around 70 million dollars. Wow. Yeah, that is a lot of money. And I will say that seems to be a uh, a trend I've really only seen in Wilmington. I'm not saying it doesn't happen other places, but, uh, you know, we saw that with the Bank of America building for the county and CFCC. Um, I've seen it a couple other times, maybe not with such large purchases, but people actually bringing the city or the county, you know, property and saying, hey, will you come take this off my hands? I think you could really use it. And, you know, whether or not they could really use it, it's just an interesting way of going about things that, you know, you got salesmen for properties now coming and pitching to your government elected officials uh, at least that that's how we've seen it. I don't know exactly if the city or the county has like land acquisition scouts, but at least 
uh, with a couple of these, we know it's been brought to them and said, hey, we've got a deal for you. Uh, hey, will you come take this massively expensive money pit off of our hands? It's not being rented out. It's not being sold. Nobody was buying the Bank of America building either. Um, it's just it's just interesting to see that uh, to see how that's playing out down there in Wilmington. Yeah, and so I want to say a couple of quick things just to give the the city its its you know its side of the story is that yeah the city has for years been working on a needs assessment that looked at you know basically a ninety million dollar um, complete redevelopment of the block uh, one block north of City Hall, so across. <laughs> across from uh, Chestnut Street. And yep. I, you know, we haven't really had a chance to get into that needs system to see if that was legitimate, because $90 million is a lot. And remember, the county built its new government center for way less than that. Um, and so I, I, we had some serious questions about how much space the city really needed. Um, and so we're kind of, but to, I mean, from their point of view, this is actually less costly than the plan they had on the books. They also feel like that $70 million will be offset by selling a number of properties that they currently own and moving everyone in the city, pretty much everyone in the city, um, with the exception of the police department and a few other things, into that building. And then they also think that some of those properties that are included, it's not just the PPD tower or the Thermo Fisher tower, it's also a couple properties around it. Those are also contiguous to that gateway project you mentioned, Bratz. Um, and so for years, the city has been buying property, trying to line them all up. So there's a number of uh, empty lots near those apartment complexes right by the Isabel Holmes Bridge. There's the Salvation Army lot. So there's now, you know, a huge plot that the city owns and hopes to be able to convert into some kind of public-private project. So on paper, I can see how the city thinks that this will actually, you know, be a net positive for them. But... Mm -hmm. One, I mean, I just hear from a lot of people what you're saying, which is that it feels like a lot of involvement in the real estate world by the government. That's not the traditional role of the government. Um, in a lot of people's minds, a lot of fiscal conservatives are just like, why is the city so involved in, in this market? So all of that to say, um, the city has been moving forward a pace. There's a lot of hurdles they have to go through before they can just straight up buy this. Um, and they've sort of been chiseling away at that, getting the financing ready, um, it's lots of like little tiny steps and then they make one big jump at the end where they vote to approve it. But one hurdle they've got to go through is the local government commission. Ah, uh, yes. Our, uh, our favorite organization that likes to throw a wrench into everybody's machine. Um, this is the, uh, a board, uh, within the office of the state treasurer who is Dale Falwell. Uh, we've seen this come up several times. Really, he has uh, been one of the biggest hindrances, uh, specifically for New Hanover County and the project formerly known as Project Grace, uh, which has died and been resurrected about three times now that I can think of. We first started covering that back in 2016, I believe, uh, or early 2017. Uh, it got some proposals, it went away, it came back, got some proposals, it got shot down. Um, and eventually, last year, we saw that uh, the LGC basically said, no, we're not going to approve this. We don't need to get into all of that. But it was a, uh, a very heated process that really, um, even from some of the more, uh, 
I guess even from some of the less vocal county commissioners uh, in New Hanover County, uh, had some pretty fiery words about Hale Falwell and the, uh, you know, him not supporting and not, you know, giving the, helping get that LGC approval of this project. To be fair, though, it's not just on Treasurer Falwell to approve this. The LGC is a, is a commission. It's not just the state treasurer. Um, so I'll be interested to see what the LGC thinks about this plan. Uh, again, the LGC does not get to decide whether or not a community actually needs the things that they're proposing they buy. It's just to make sure that what they're, you know, how they plan to pay for it is in the best interest of the taxpayers. Um, and that's uh, essentially, again, with Project Grace and the Government Center for New Hanover County, the LGC said, change some stuff. You can save your taxpayers money. Um, and with Project Grace, the county said, no. And the LGC said, okay, well, no, no from us too. Yeah. Um, so yeah. haven't heard anything on this. Have you? Yeah. So I've spoken with the treasurer about this um, on Tuesday next week, I believe May 2nd, they're going to be looking at this. Mm -hmm. So I might have some questions to forward to the LGC to see if they might be able to get answers. The city has been reasonably transparent about this process, but one thing I haven't been able to get clarity on is, I think because this study is still ongoing, but it looks like right now there is more than enough political will for the city to buy this. I haven't heard anyone being, you know, antagonistic to this idea. Uh, one thing I have heard a criticism of is that there are 12 stories to the PPD building, to the Thermo building, and the city does not need all of it. Um, in fact, it's not entirely clear exactly what square footage they need, but, you know, half, you know, more or less, less than the whole building. So they will be a corporate landlord, um, which concerns some people because, again, that's not what we think of the government being. But we also have some questions about where in the building the city will set up shop. And it seems that... Um, City Councilman Charlie Rivenbark and uh, Mayor Pro Tem Margaret Haynes are in favor of renting out the top floors of the building, which include a, a deck and sort of um, a penthouse suite. And freshman Councilman Luke Waddell has said he thinks the city should take the lower floors or whatever the least expensive floors are, basically. Now, what I'm curious right, here... Fiscal, fiscal responsibility. Yeah, know. and our, our question here is, what is the over-under? You know, what is the what is the annual difference in rent that the city would be losing, basically, by, by taking the prime spot? And I have heard, but cannot confirm, that this difference is significant, that it could be up to a million dollars a year, um, just so that the government can have nice views. Now, there, I have, to be fair, I have heard some countervailing arguments um, that, for example having you know having the ground floors might be easier to rent to someone because they would be lower cost you know so it sort of broadens the pool of people who might be able to get that because this is primo real estate um it is but again i that's i think that's an important question and as as in many government decisions this feels like we are running to the finish line um and leaving unanswered questions in our wake and it just feels like going to the lgc without having some of those things hammered out uh, without having the the appraisal fully finished, um, I don't know. It, it feels like we're doing a hurry up offense here to get this sale done by the middle of the summer, which is the timeline the city has identified. Yeah, and you know, I I want to go back to something you said, and that's the funding of this project. And you know, whether or not the city needs 
the square footage, you know, all for those for the naysayers, I'll say, look at this: the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County as a whole are expanding rapidly, while the city itself, the uh, annexing new properties left and right like it used to, uh, the population growth is there. That puts a need for more services, which means more employees. So, yes, the, when you have a growing population, you're going to need more space for your for your local government employees. So I'm not. You know, I don't know one way or the other how badly, you know, do they have four people crammed into a broom closet in City Hall? I don't know. I don't think so. But it might be that bad. I, I'm, I can't say. Um, but my, my hesitation, and I've, I've put this out there publicly, uh, and I will always be uh, a critic of the lack of free market economy that local governments in southeastern north carolina in particular seem to take with the property that they own and this is also something that uh treasurer falwell has also touched on he calls them all uh he, he calls these public private partnerships like a big corporate banking deal he doesn't like them uh for the most part he says you know when they're needed when they're necessary great but when they're not needed you don't get into a partnership when you're flush with money and that you can afford things, you get into a partnership when you need that extra boost. Uh, so all that to say, the city says they're going to be selling off some other downtown real estate, uh, possibly that, uh, what is it, the 310 Chestnut Street building? Yeah, the 305 Chestnuts. Um, I believe 305 there's... I think there's six or seven properties total. There's, there's a, I mean, the city's um, operations are spread out over a number of buildings. They own a lot of property. Uh, a lot of it is clustered it, around that um, city hall block. Yeah. So they do own a lot of property. And as we've seen, the city is, and the county, and, you know, for good or bad reasons, they are very, very hesitant to give anybody control over the land that they you know, have as their own. They're like smog the dragon sitting on top of all their property and saying, no, you can't have it. But if they do end up selling it, they, you know, in my experience, what I've seen is we haven't seen very many upset bid processes where the market dictates the price, fair market value, and the highest bidder wins. We have seen much more of these public-private partnerships or attempted uh, land donations, which I don't think is going to be the case in this, uh, attempted like nonprofit sales that don't have to go through the upset bid process. Um, will the city actually like flat out put these things on the market and let the market dictate what goes there? Or are they going to use the excuse of, oh, no, we're going to do a public-private partnership and sell this to them, but that way we can control what goes there? Again, not the purpose of government. The free market, if you're going to have a free market, you need to let the free market dictate. The government trying to control what goes where should be done through zoning ordinances, not through all these taxpayer costing uh, projects that, you know, yeah, while they can make you some money, you can't always, it's a lot of speculation as well. Um, it's just one of the more frustrating things that since five years in Wilmington, um, the number of upset bid property sales that I've seen are very, very low. I will also say that the one counterexample would be the Castle Street property, the former Wave um, bus depot. 
which was yeah. basically in a low-income black neighborhood, and the, the city seemed very disinterested or just unable to come to terms uh, in, to do something with a nonprofit there, which would fall under the heading of controlling what goes there. Um, it just, at one point, Bill Sappho said on the dais, um, I just think we could get a better deal if we just sold it. And so it's... So have they? They have sold it. They sold it to Dave Spetrino. They did. Um, okay. They walked away from yet another uh, nonprofit plan, um, which did seem not fully formed. So I, I don't exactly blame them for that. But my point here is that <laughs> we hear government officials saying that the the desire is to control what goes there, and usually that's just a paper over the the economic development benefit. They want to they want to generate more money, and so. You know, I think there's a lot to unpack there, but as as far as the thermo building goes, because we could talk about this all day. Um, to your point, the LGC doesn't decide whether or not the city needs it, and it doesn't even decide, you know, the about the optics of the city buying, you know, the shiniest, tallest building in downtown. But what it will look at is are there places to save money, and so I'm curious to see what comes out of that. Um, so stay tuned. That again, that is next uh, Tuesday, so we'll probably have something about that next week. Um, but I want to move on, uh, and talk about this human trafficking case. Yeah. So this one was interesting. Um, just came out. What was that Wednesday? I think, yep. um, new Hanover County Sheriff's office. And now for the folks listening, I am not in Wilmington right now. So my, uh, a lot of my news is coming, you know, either from Ben or from Facebook, Twitter, like a lot of y'all are getting it. Uh, I still get press releases and things, but I don't know as much as Ben does on this. So I'm going to kind of let you take the reins. But uh, what I will say is, especially with the comment section on social media, um, there were some pretty significant arrests made for a, I guess it was like an ongoing human trafficking uh, investigation within multiple jurisdictions helping out uh, that all kind of took place in Wilmington, right? Yeah. So just listen to this list of law enforcement agencies. The FBI, the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office, the Onslow County Sheriff's Office, the Jacksonville Police Department, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS for you TV fans, Homeland Security, North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, the North Carolina Probation and North, North Carolina's uh, Probation Office um, and the Durham Police Department. That's a big, big operation. And the, well, the Treasury Department not available? <laughs> well, you know, hang in there because a lot of this is a, an illegal business. And, um, you know, the IRS and the state Treasury Department do get involved with uh, RICO type cases like this where you've got yeah. a, a criminal organization that is making money. Here's the funny thing. In the United States of America, the money you make from crime is still taxable. Um, well, that's good. So if you purchase drugs and uh, don't pay taxes on them, you owe it. If you are running a business, <laughs> even if it's the illegal business of human trafficking and you are not reporting your income, the IRS will still get you. Um, it's it's less flashy, but yeah. So you joke, but yes, the Treasury Department might still get involved. Um, so the most severe charges were for uh, Christopher Todd Evans, who just goes by Todd Evans to most people that I've spoken with. He is charged with 166 felonies related to human trafficking and narcotics violations. And he got a $3.7 million bond. Um, the high bonds are unconstitutional. People were notably quiet on this one. Um, but that yeah. is a very, very high bond. And yeah. look, here's what I've been able to dig up. So 
according to the sheriff's office, they, they gave us very, very little. And it's an ongoing investigation, so I'll give them some credence there. Basically, they're saying that this company, the Cape Fear Escorts, or Cape Fear Entertainers, uh, they went by both names, um, was basically a, a stripper company that would send a stripper to your house or your party. And then these strippers would engage in commercial sex work, and then the company took the proceeds. Now, it's not clear. Here's, here's my question. It's not clear how that became trafficking, because that's prostitution. It's even an organized prostitution ring. But trafficking means something different to some people. It's a pretty murky understanding of what trafficking actually is. Usually involves coercion of some of some sort. Right. And so the question for me, which has not been answered, we understand that this is ongoing and that it will be answered in court at some point. But I'm curious to see at what point, like how it actually became a trafficking operation. Um because this has been going on for a long time. This company has been around for 20 years or more, as I understand it. Um, someone wow. actually sent me a photo of a lighter um, with a Cape Fear Escorts logo on it and a phone number uh, from, like, 2007, I think. Yeah, I did see that. I saw that on, uh, on social media. Uh, I will say, with all these people involved, all these uh, agencies I'm curious, and I don't know, uh, but maybe the trafficking comes down to crossing uh, interstate lines or even county jurisdictional lines. Uh, could that contribute to trafficking if you brought, uh, you know, your entertainers up from Wilmington to Jacksonville? Uh, does that make it trafficking at that point? I don't know, but I'm just I'm trying to whittle that down. Yeah, I mean, it's it will it'll be interesting to see how they define trafficking in this case, what level of extortion or pressure was necessary, and I, I will say this, um, and then save save further commentary for for later in the case is that there is yeah. there is definitely a moral panic around human trafficking, and yeah. I, we we've routinely heard it described by people. Uh, as you know, people grabbing young women off the street, throwing them in the back of the van, beating them, handcuffing right. them, driving them to a different state, and forcing them into sex work. And that right. does happen. But those cases are much more rare than the number of human trafficking charges that we see. Often, yeah. human trafficking is something like a, a young woman, and sometimes a man, but, but often these are women, um, who is, say, addicted to heroin, right? And their heroin dealer, who is also a pimp, will say... I will give you some heroin. Uh, you can get your fix, but you have to go have sex with this person. Right. And it's kind of using their chemical dependency to extort them. And that's horrifying, but it's not exactly what some people are thinking about. It's not like taken. Um, there's no Liam Neeson situation yeah. here. And so yeah. at the minimum, I can say that there is a lot of confusion and public misunderstanding about what human trafficking is. It's also worth saying right. that there is there is consensual sex work. Um, it's illegal, but it is not the kind of thing. Again, it's not a taken situation. These are not sex slaves. And every time we report right. on prostitution or or human trafficking, we hear from these people. I can say that there are also people I've heard from who have a, a pretty utopian, rosy view of sex work that does not correlate with what's actually happening on the street at all. Right. And uh, those people will annihilate you on Twitter if you, as just part of the patriarchy, pushing it, you know, a repressive anti-sex yeah. agenda. Um, I, I invite those people to the local Motel 8 to see, like, an underage girl addicted to heroin forced into sex work and tell me how rosy that view of sex work is. But. Yeah, it's, 
It, it certainly, yes, it's, it's a very divisive topic for some people. Um, but I do have a question while we're on that kind of more nuanced aspect of these things. I was going through social media and uh, because a lot of these people are uh, fairly well known in the community, I guess they've been there for 20 years. Of, uh, it seems like a lot of people knew that they were doing this, um, which to me is you know, problematic, I guess. If all these people are like, ah, oh, I knew it would catch up to him. Yeah. I'm like, did you, did you say anything? Like, what do you mean you knew it would catch up to him? If I knew that someone was trafficking people, you would think that that report would have been made 20 years ago in 2002 when it started. I don't know. Um, but I also saw some comments that I just wanted some clarification. I don't know one way or the other. Um, but I didn't see any charges that stood out to me for anybody underage. Um, because with the current political climate, we see a lot of, uh, a lot more. And it, it's not even a, a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing to bring awareness to these issues. Um, but I don't want people to, to mix the two situations up with sex trafficking, uh, running an escort service, uh, with, you know, grooming of children or trafficking of children. Were there any underage victims named in this so far? Do we know of? To my knowledge, there has been no allegations related to indecent liberties with a minor or child sex okay. abuse or any of the other child sex crimes that are under North Carolina statutes. Now, that could change. There's, Like I said, this sure. is still ongoing. But I will say I've spoken to about a dozen people who were familiar with this operation over the last year. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, people are very cagey right now. Uh, they either don't want to interfere with the investigation or they're afraid they might get roped up into it. So I'm yeah. going to leave all of them anonymous for the time being. But what I have heard yeah. is that this was um, a legitimate is the wrong word, but it was a consensual stripping company. These were women who wanted to engage in exotic dancing um, and used this company basically as a talent booking company. Um, right. And when and where they engaged in commercial sex work, it was consensual. That is what I have heard. Uh, and they were all, you know, 18 and, uh, you know, 18 or older. So Right. And the, there's there's always the chance that someone younger than that. But just for the people in the in the comments, just to, for, for clarity, um, you know, it, it doesn't make the the charges any different uh, or, you know, any less serious than what they already are. But uh, for those saying, you know, put those pedophiles behind bars and bury them under the jail and the typical Facebook rhetoric, um, Right now, there are no accusations, not to defend any crimes whatsoever, um, but just for clarity's sake that I, you and I now, I think we're both on the same page, haven't seen anything accusing pedophilia or child sex abuse or anything like that. So, um, you know, just just wanted to put that out there. And then I have another question for you, Ben. Um, when you hear escort service, <laughs> I, I, uh, I mean... I've been to Vegas. I've seen all the signs. They ha they hand out business cards. I know prostitution is legal in Vegas, but isn't escort service just a euphemism for you know uh, for sex work? Um, at least in in most people's minds. I know it is in mine. I've talked with other people after seeing this, um, and you know that's kind of the the nicer euphemism for. Uh, for the term prostitute or however you want to address sex worker. I don't know what the 
word of the week is I can't say, um, but sex worker uh, versus escort, I've always kind of put them as one in the same. Yeah, no, that's a very valid question. I, I think it's a euphemism for two different things. I think it's both a okay. euphemism for uh, a stripper or it's a euphemism for uh, prostitution or both. And I think what, es- I mean, I lived in uh, Manhattan for almost a decade and there were, you know, mm-hmm. endless escort companies um, <laughs> and uh, some prominent New York politicians got wrapped up in that. Uh, but I think the image that was projected in their advertising was that this was for, you know, savvy world traveling business tycoons who just needed a piece of arm candy. Uh, I try and be dismissive. I'm just right. they'll go on a, they'll go on a date with you. And, uh, but then anything, and you know, I've even seen it on TV. I mean, you watch any, uh, CSI or criminal minds, eventually you're going to get to something that has, escort service in there um and they always just say no anything that happened after the date was consensual they paid me for my time and my company um but i just the reason i bring that up is just naming your thing naming your business the cape fear escorts i mean did it really take 10 years to discover this thing yeah so i want to i want to break this down real quick um okay so yeah i mean (laughs) This is if you just Google Elliot Spitzer from New York and you'll see what I'm talking about. But, yeah, there was this idea that this was for politicians who needed to go to fundraisers and needed a plus one because you always have to fill two seats. Or, you know, again, like a a business tycoon who didn't want to be seen dining alone um, and that they would go out with a glamorous, well-dressed woman. And then the evening would just end. And if they really hit it off and had consensual sex, that was off the clock. That was the image that was being projected. Um the arrest and prosecution of Elliot Spitzer kind of put the lie to that. And I think what happened here, and I think that the escorts entertainers, you know, moniker gives it away a little bit, but what it seemed to actually be, and I actually was able to go on uh, the Internet Archive and find their old website, which has since been taken down. And uh, there's an FAQ section, which is kind of funny. Um, And it asks, you know, what do I need to provide? They're like, oh, well, you need a bathroom for the entertainer to freshen up and a boombox. So I think I think we know what's going on here. This is a stripper who's going to come. You're going to put on whatever you're going to whatever your musical tastes are. They're going to take their clothes off and then you're going to give them money. Um, Now, the the website also, you know, basically said there's no you know, there's no upcharging for nudity. So this was pretty clear that this was, you know, naked dancing. But. I think almost everyone that I've talked to knew that there was some sex happening, some sex work happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think that's that's what it, that it was. And I think there's it, two things are hard to reconcile here is, is that this was going on for so long. So many people knew about it. There didn't seem to be an element of danger or violence or extortion that anyone was aware of, which might be why no one went to law enforcement. And right, so, and just to be clear, I, I just want to reiterate what you're saying so it doesn't sound uh, that anybody's aware of is what we're saying with that, not that there wasn't any sort of element. We just don't know about it, and that's what will come out in the, in the investigation, I would assume. So exactly. So, caveat that. Exactly. No, and I'm glad you said that because that's what I want to get to is that that's what I'm curious to see is where this turned the corner from being an illegal operation for you know strippers into something worse, into a trafficking operation. And we haven't heard anything about that, but 
based on the number of law enforcement agencies involved in this, based on the seriousness and just the staggering number of charges, I have to I have to hope that law enforcement did not jump into the breach and make arrests without some serious evidence. So that's I think we can leave it there. Like that's what we're waiting to yeah. see is where did this go? I mean, your moral opinions aside, they're already breaking some laws and probably some tax laws. But this right. appears to be darker than the public perception of it was, and we're right. waiting to see the evidence of that. So that's where we're at. Yeah, I'm really curious. Uh, final thing on that, I'm really curious just to see what Homeland Security's involvement is, because you see FBI. Yes, if you transfer through state lines, you have any sort of uh, FBI handles kidnapping, uh, bank robberies in the U.S., those sorts of things. The FBI gets involved automatically. Um, I'm just I, I understand where the FBI came in, even if they just went from South Carolina to North Carolina, it could become a federal case. Um, but Homeland Security is a different beast altogether. Um, and that typically. I, I don't know, are we talking, um, you know, possible human trafficking in the taken uh, sense, the, the, the film taken like, uh, you know, why would Homeland Security be involved? when they deal a lot with, um, you know, uh, travel, borders, airplanes, things of that nature. So that's uh, just my curiosity. I have no, I'm not going to speculate on that because I don't know, but that, that's the one agency you named that made me say, wait, what? Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, so that's just interesting. I, I would only have speculation to offer, but I will say in the past, in stories we've covered, Homeland Security is very, very involved in images of child sex abuse. Um, so ah. what, our, what our former editor insisted on calling uh, kitty porn, which is just a tasteless as hell oh. way of talking about it. Yeah. The professional term is now you know, images of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, Homeland Security, yeah. um, because they have considerable resources to monitor both the traditional and the dark web, um, <laughs> are constantly looking for this stuff. And because it's on the internet, it's, it's borderless, right? So it, that sort of is what puts it into their jurisdiction. And Interesting. Okay. They, they initiate a lot of child pornography or image of child abuse yes. cases. And they basically, they find this stuff online and then they go to whatever the local law enforcement agency is and hand it over to them. Um, yep. So if there was a website, there were, um, the images appear to have been deleted, but there were images of women on the website. And right. to your point, if someone was younger than they had said, that could have been, um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, online aspects of this that may have brought in Homeland Security, gotcha. but we have to wait okay. and see. Well, that, yeah, we'll definitely have to keep an eye on that one. I know there's a lot of talk and a lot of interest. Uh, again, a lot of these, well, not a lot, but there, I think there were, what, five or six men arrested, and uh, it seems like people knew them in the community. So again, just a lot of eyeballs on this, and, uh, you know, part of it, talk, this is, there is that interest. Part of it, though, is to, you know, just I encourage people to actually read what the charges are and know what you know and avoid speculation, not to defend any of these actions, but in America, you are innocent until proven guilty. Um, but just not to, to spread. When I saw the Facebook comments talking about uh, child sex trafficking and seeing the actual charges, that's what kind of made me, you know, stop and say, you know, maybe people should uh, actually read what the charges are and understand it. So that's kind of why I wanted to just, touch on this topic yeah the last thing i'll say really quick is that yes uh the jesse earl bright who is um 
who had the actually lowest level of charges. Uh, he had four felonies as opposed to 166 felonies for Todd Evans. That is the uh, the viral Uber driving attorney that we reported on back in, I believe it was 2017. Um, right. Uh, I will say this, a shame on Port City Daily for their headline that said he was arrested in a case associated with over 150 felonies. That really did make it sound like uh, Jesse Bright was responsible for 150 incidences of uh, trafficking where he's being charged with four um, or and not even trafficking. He's being charged with four counts of uh, promotion and profiting from prostitution. We don't actually know what that means. Um, again, not weighing in on his guilt or innocence and not defending the crime uh, as you know being a, a, a meaningless crime. But um, I think there was some nuance missing from that headline. And I, uh, I'll just be candid and say, I think if these defendants were black, we'd be a lot more careful about how exactly we were representing the allegations against them. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm um, not going to drag you into that. That's my personal hobby horse, though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's fine. Um, as we've mentioned, uh, we're kind of dragging on here, going a little longer than I had planned on speaking on that one. But um, as we had mentioned in the past, as people probably know, if you're listening to this, uh, I am now in Charlotte. Um, ben, you're obviously still in Wilmington. We're trying to keep this thing going as much as possible once i get uh i'm moving into a new house so once i get there i'll be able to have a better recording studio so if the audio is poor i apologize um we are trying to focus on some larger issues but when things like this come up like the thermo fisher building and this situation um you know it can be more nuanced on particular areas that you know we find interesting because again it's our podcast um but all that being said, I did want to fill some people in that, you know, might not be following me on Twitter um, with what I'm doing up here in Charlotte. Uh, I will say I will be sharing some stuff that we can probably uh, that will more than likely be talking about on this podcast um, about different investigations. I've been kind of digging into since I got up here. One, I do want to just quickly mention um, this is in Anson County the Anson County Chamber of Commerce president and CEO um, is being investigated by the SBI after a report was taken by the Wadesboro Police Department. Now, this is off 74, about uh, in between Charlotte and Wilmington, closer towards the Charlotte side, but only by maybe 45 minutes or an hour. It's kind of in the middle of 74, in the middle of nowhere here, um, in between the two cities. So, uh, Got some, we got a tip. I did some snooping, tried to track stuff down, got confirmation from the SBI. But this is something I'd like to look into and we can, a topic for another day. Um, but this uh, Chamber of Commerce president is being, it, the allegations are that he or she, and the reason I say that is because while I do know the name of the president and CEO, the person is not named. So this, uh, in theory, could be back like, 20 years and it could be a different person. I don't believe that to be the case, but I will refrain from naming anybody since there are no names on the report, but it does say president and CEO. Um, we don't know what this person has done uh, in terms of embezzlement, but nonprofit organizations like chambers of commerce make a lot of money. And a lot of that money either comes uh, from the government through economic development purposes. You know, they give grants and things like that. Um, or from businesses, business owners, typically a lot of small business owners are members of the Chamber of Commerce. Um, they pay dues into this, and where that money goes, uh, while it should be reported on your IRS uh, tax form, 
uh, it's not always as clear as it seems. And trying to weed through those nonprofit, um, nonprofit end of the year uh, tax wrap up. I can't remember the number of the sheet now. Uh, 1099, maybe? No. Um, either way, uh, Chamber of Commerce embezzlement, uh, after I started looking into this, um, it's, I'm starting to see more and more news stories popping about this. So, you know, for those out there uh, who might have any suspicions about your Chamber of Commerce, let us know. I'd, be, I'd love to look into it um, and, you know, kind of see where this money is actually being spent. Yeah, and I feel like we're going to be talking about this a lot more on the podcast because, as we were saying before we started recording this week's show, is that it's really an untapped world. Um, a lot of people, a lot of journalists seem hesitant, and I'm just as guilty of this, uh, of going and really starting to flip over rocks in the nonprofit world. They kind of get a pass a lot of the time uh, because they're yeah. generally thought of as like, ah, well, they're doing good, you know. They're either working for economic development or they're, you know, they're working on some charitable cause. And so it is less common that you'll see a journalist start to, uh, I don't know, be the skunk in the room and say, yeah, but are you guys really being accountable for the, um, you know, the public money that you're getting? And I think that's something yep. journalists everywhere should maybe reevaluate, myself included. So f food for thought. And yeah, we'll definitely absolutely. be talking about that more. Sounds like a plan. All right, but for now, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, like we said, we, we are working on the audio quality issues, and we hope to have that uh, up and running in the near future. But for now, thanks for listening. All right, we will see you next week. We'll see you next week.